Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I think if if this was the only teaching I could give, it would be enough. That the truth that pours from Your Spirit and spills into the heart and out of the mouth of Paul and onto the page as it is penned in this letter. Lord, if it's the only thing we ever heard, it would be enough. It is remarkable. It is amazing. And it is promised. And I ask, Lord, that You would help us to soak in it this morning and to to fully grasp what it is that's said right here. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would make us alive. By Your Spirit, teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, it's Resurrection Sunday, and we talked about how God raised up Jesus. We talked back in, about, in fact, if you look back in verse 19 of chapter 1, we looked at the, the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. But in this heavenly letter, Paul now goes on to tell us that in Christ we have been raised up too. Last week was raised up. This is raised up too. Raised up part two, if you want to call it. But we have been raised up too. Now, last week we ended on a profound prophecy out of the book of Hosea. I want you to keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 2 and flip back to Hosea. He's in the minor prophets toward the end of the Hebrew scriptures. Hosea chapter 6. Because I promised to give a fuller explanation, so we're going to do that as we get into Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. While you're turning there, let me remind you of the verse that we read. It's Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. And I said last week that if one day is like a thousand years, as as Peter put it, 2 Peter 3.8, as as the psalmist put it in Psalm 90 verse 4, then if that's the case, then two days have gone by in the two millennia since Jesus' resurrection. What happens on the third day? We rise. We rise. He will raise us up. That's the prophetic promise. That's the statement there in Hosea. But I want you to get the full context of what it is that Hosea is prophesying, or perhaps what he's saying as he represents the people of Israel. 
Beginning in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He has wounded, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth that we are so familiar with here in Washington State. This is the promise. Now us, again, is the Jew. He has torn us. He will heal us. He has wounded, but He will bandage us. This is the Jewish person speaking. This is Hosea speaking on behalf of Israel, and Israel is responding to godly discipline. Prophetically here, it's a recognition of all that has taken place literally across 2,000 years. The fact that for 1,878 years, the Jews were a people without a homeland, driven out of the land, despised in this world. No other people, I've said this so many times I can't even count it, no other people group in the history of the world has been more maligned than the Jew. No one. And so when we start to gather and understand the context that God chose this people, that God loved this people, and that God disciplines this people, what we hear is the people saying, come let us return to the Lord. Let's go back. He will, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. And I believe talking about the millennial kingdom. The kingdom that was promised prophetically to Israel, for Israel, will be accomplished by God because He keeps His word. Because He doesn't say it without doing it. He is not a man that He should lie. So if he says he's going to accomplish something, he doesn't just set it aside because, oh, well, it didn't seem to work out so well. No, he does it. He does what he says he's going to do. And here, Hosea speaking for Israel, recognizing godly discipline, recognizes the two punishing days. And from this, (laughs) these, these two punishing days come from the throbbing and pulsating redemptive heart of God. Why would God treat any people like this or allow His own people to be treated in this manner? Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God beside Me. It is I who put death, who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from My hand. And so again, because of a stiff-necked rebellion... Because of a refusal to hear, God disciplined Israel in a complete diaspora, dispersion, across 2,000 years. But by stunning prophecy, fulfilled in a sudden delivery, Eretz Israel was a land born in a day, May 14, 1948. Isaiah 66 verse 8 tells us, Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Yeah, Rick, you've talked about that whole Israel thing. I know, because it's huge. It is the most stunning prophetic moment in this generation. 
And if you are unaware of it, you need to be aware of it, that on that day, Israel became a nation again. It has never happened in history that a nation driven out of their land for more than 200 years ever came back to be restored as a nation. But for Israel, it was nearly 2,000. And then, even so, even for the Jewish people coming back into the land, late 1800s, on into the 1900s, and then 1948, actually declaring themselves a sovereign nation again, attacked on all sides by five Arab countries on that day, and yet surviving. But it would be yet another 19 years before Jerusalem would be reclaimed as capital of the nation of Israel. President Trump, move our embassy. Right now our embassy sits in Tel Aviv, which is not the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is. Best thing he could do for this country. He still has a few days left in the first hundred. Best thing he could do for the country. Move our embassy. And you might say, well Rick, that's tantamount to warfare. No, it's tantamount to trusting God. It's tantamount to saying, this is God's holy city, this is God's country, and these are God's people. And we believe that. Now the Lord did warn that Jerusalem would be an issue. You students of Bible prophecy have heard Zechariah 12 verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. You could gather six and a half billion people on the borders of Jerusalem and try to take it out, and God would stop it. God would protect His city. And it continues to be the city that causes trembling in the world. Jesus Himself prophesied as much. Luke 21-24 Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Why are you going off on Israel? We're in Ephesians. Listen. 1878 years without a homeland. Reviled in the world. Following the horror of the Holocaust, the Jews were reduced to less than 2% of the world's population and even the Hebrew language was completely dead. An unspoken language, an unused language. Well, that's not a problem for God. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, another prophecy fulfilled. I will turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. And so Hebrew is the pure language of Israel today. Revived out of the ashes, remarkable, and the return of the Jews to their homeland in this generation, get this, is a clear indication of the coming revival of Israel on the third day. What we have seen bears out what we will see. Let me say this again. We need to understand the return of the Jews to their homeland in this generation is a clear indication of the coming revival of Israel on the third day. You might call it the third thousandth year, the millennial kingdom. So what's the point of the history lesson? Very simply this. Israel was as good as dead. And so were you. Israel was a dead nation with a dead language, 
A people dispersed throughout the world, dying off at a rapid pace. Israel was dead, and so were we. Back in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. It doesn't get more final than that. It doesn't get more final. At least physical death, right? Dead is dead. Or so it would seem. According to this world, dead is dead. I I shot a rabbit once. I did. I confess, I had a Red Ryder BB gun. I pulled the trigger. I didn't think it would work. I mean, it's just a little BB. I didn't think, and it just, it went right into that little sucker's skull. It jumped up, it flipped around, it flopped out, and it was dead. I could not raise it. I tried. I killed Thumper. And I knew in that moment of deepest, darkest sin that Bambi was just a matter of time. I'll never forget that. Looking at that being that was once hopping about, lying there still and motionless and thinking, dead is dead. I remember when my grandmother died. I was a freshman in high school. And it was the first time someone really close to me had passed away. And I remember going to the viewing and looking at her and thinking, well, dead is dead, but that's not her. Something wasn't right. Something was missing. And I think that was my introduction into understanding the spirit and the true heart and nature of a person because she was not there. But that's just that physical death. Physical death, we look and we say, dead is dead, what can be done? But Paul is addressing something here worse than physical death. Something beyond physical death. He is talking about spiritual death. And you were dead. In your transgressions, in your trespasses and your sins, you were dead. I was dead. Paul is describing beyond physical death. This is not a body that we can't revive. This is a spirit that is history, toast for all eternity. You were dead. Why? Because of, well, he uses two familiar synonyms. Trespasses and sins. Trespasses is paraptima in the Greek, and it is a lapse or a deviation in judgment from what one knows is right. A lapse. It's fallen asleep behind the wheel. And then what's interesting is sins is hamartia in the Greek, and that is to swerve from the truth. A lapse of the recognition of what is right, swerving from the truth, you put these two together, and by the way, both words indicate some degree of intentionality. That the lapse from the truth was, well, I might feign ignorance, but I actually kind of chose to lapse. I might pretend innocence, but I chose to swerve. And sin grabs the wheel, and we find ourselves in the ditch dead. That's spiritual death. And Paul describes this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Formally? Boy, I'm so glad that word is there so quickly. I mean, even in the midst of this ultimate spiritual death, the hint of good news is irrepressible. You were dead. Were. 
formally. Hint, hint. Good news is on the way. But before we get to the good news, we have to understand that formerly we were the walking dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Let's unpack this. First of all, course. According to the course of this world, the word course is eon. It's where we get our word eon. In the Greek it's aeon. According to the aeon of this world, and it's interesting because he's not talking about a particular era of history, he's talking about an era of eternity. That the course of this world is simply an era in the larger picture of eternity. It's strange to think of our history, broad and big and all the things that have happened on this earth, as simply an era of eternity. But it is. World history is a blip. Our entire past as a planet, when people try to say the planet's 4.7 billion years old, you know, and they try to apply the length because it's the only way that they can confirm the idea of evolution, it truly is. I mean, you have to have billions upon billions of years to make evolutionary, evolutionary theory work, right? How many billions of years? I've said this before. I don't know how many billions of times it would take to take a box of Apple Jacks, throw it into the sky, and have it all fall down and spell out Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) That's the kind of design we're talking about that happened perchance by accident. But given enough time, maybe it could happen. I think that's ridiculous, but I'll tell you this. Say the earth was 10 billion years old. Let's give them that. It's still a tiny little bit. It is a binary digit compared to eternity. And that's the history of this world. It's just a... Well, that was too long. Sorry. I mean, it it is so tiny. This era in which we live. And yet, Paul writes in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil eon. This evil age. Now, in this evil age, in this course, there are a couple of entities uh, with whom we would be well advised to be Aware. Number one is the archon. The archon, that's the Greek word, and it means ruler or prince. He is the archon for this eon, the prince of the power of the air. Paul describes him. Prince of the power of the air. Paul is as certain as Peter, is as certain as Jesus, is as certain on this topic, on this truth, that the devil is a clear and present danger. I've spoken this before. Let me be absolutely clear. The devil is not a force. The devil is not a persona of evil. The devil is a being. An evil being that was once glorious. A being created by God for praise. Who has rebelled against God and is opposed to God. Satan even means adversary. He stands against God. And he is as actual as you, as me here today. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4.27, do not give the devil an opportunity. Literally, don't give the devil a place. Don't crack the door. Don't make a bed for him in the guest room. 
Don't offer him opportunity. He's already in this evil age. He is the ruler of this evil age. Don't give him place in your house, in your life. Ephesians 6.11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is the prince of the power of the air. Now, don't think for a moment that means the devil is an airhead. And don't think for a moment that, well, if he's the prince of the power of the air, well, then that's an empty threat. It's just air, you know? What can he really do? This is important to understand. The word air... It's actually pronounced the same way in the Greek. You'd spell it A-E-R, and air is the atmosphere. It's the atmosphere. Now think about this with me. He is the, the archon of the eon of the air. He is the ruler of the age of the atmosphere, and what that tells us is it gives us the extent of his domain. This is where Satan does and can function. My friends, in ancient understanding, air in the Greek is that which extends from earth's surface upward to the end of the breathable air. And he's the prince of that realm, of that region. Philo, the uh, first century Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, he said the air is the home of incorporeal beings called demons by the other philosophers but customarily angels by the sacred record. Paul is describing the devil's domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's got the atmosphere. This is his realm in which to function. It is the lowest of the three heavenlies. What? You know how in Jewish understanding, there's the first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. The third heaven is where God resides, God's abode. The second heaven would be the starry skies, what we would consider the universe. And the first heaven is the breathable air. It's the atmosphere. It's from here up to the end of the oxygen. And what Paul has just told us is that is where Satan dwells. That's his domain. That's where he does his business. F.F. Bruce says the domain of the air is another way of indicating the heavenly realm, which according to Ephesians 6.12 is the abode of those principalities and powers, world rulers of this darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness, against which, he adds, the people of Christ wage war. When we get there in Ephesians 6, and we will, Lord willing, in a few weeks... That's the realm that we're talking about. That is Satan's realm. Notice, he doesn't have the outer space. And the planetary systems and the universe, that, that, that region is not his, really. It's not his domain. He certainly doesn't have domain where God's abode is, the third heaven. Now, he has access. The Bible tells us clearly he still has access. He will be kicked out of there, ultimately his visa revoked. And he will not have access anymore about midway through the tribulation. For more understanding, go through the Revelation study. You'll get it. But right now, his work, his domain is right here. He is the archon of this eon, of this air, this realm. Now you might ask, well, why isn't he interstellar? You know, why why the limitation? Why not ruler of the moon? Or ruler of Alpha Centauri, or Polaris, or Betelgeuse. 
That's an actual star. Did you know? It is. Beetlejuice is a star. And that's how you say it. (laughs) Why isn't he out there? Big, grand, glorious. He tried to go big once. And it didn't work out so well. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, God says, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And that day is yet to come. But currently, this is His domain. This is His domain. Why? Well, because this is where the people are. And He wants to stay close. This is also where His servants are. And that's the second entity you ought to be aware of during this evil or in this evil eon. And that is not only the prince of the power of the air, but the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience, alert, warning, eyes open, be sober. Colossians chapter 3 verse 6 says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked while you were living in them. Wait a minute, the sons of disobedience. Okay, so there's Satan, the prince of the power of the air. So the sons of disobedience, are these like demonic beings too? No. No, these are people. These are those born in sin, settled in rebellion. And originally the arch rebel instigated them to sin and trespass, but now they, the sons of disobedience, have become the instigators of other sin. They are those in the world, aware or not, who are working in the service of evil in the service of the enemy of God. More and more and more we see the instigation of sin in this society. Not just understood, but encouraged, pushed, driven, if you will. This wide cultural approval of sin that is absolutely swerving off-road from the truth. What I think was originally a, a lapse even among churches, has become a swerving where our trespasses have now become sin. You know, it's been said, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to swim upstream, to go against the way all society seems to be going. And so in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I have tried this out. I'm talking about with fruit. I have an apple drawer at home. And in the apple drawer, we had a bunch of apples that we got. Some, some lovely Fujis. I love the Fuji apple. And we have one bad one. And it was in the drawer, and I knew it was in the drawer, but I put it in the back of the drawer, and I thought, we'll deal with this later, because, you know, as a man, walking from the refrigerator all the way to the trash can is a long way to go. (laughs) So I left the apple in there, and we forgot about it. And I went to get apples and cheese the other night, and I pull open the drawer, and there are like four apples in the back, and they're all molded and rotten, and I'm like, ooh, that's no good. Bad company. It corrupts good morals. I had to pause on this. I didn't want to. 
But regarding the sons of disobedience, here's a truth we must recognize. Sometimes they show up right in a church fellowship. Doesn't mean we should be paranoid, but we should be prepared. We need to remain sober. Well, how do they show up in a church fellowship? Well, these are those who flout sin, who tout rebellion, who lure weaker or unsuspecting brothers and sisters to do things that otherwise they wouldn't do because we're all Christians and we all understand, right? It's no big deal. You know, we, we, we know that there's a line here somewhere where it gets to be wrong. But as long as we're just hanging out as Christian brothers and sisters, it's okay if we're doing this behavior or involved in that activity. And we wink at sin. And there are those who do this. And there are those who even thinking they're just fine and it's all good and relax, Pastor Rick, you're so uptight about sin and transgression and all that stuff. <laughs> we just, we're just having a good time here. Sons of disobedience. Daughters of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. You know why the Bible says so often that we need to be sober? Because when we're a little tipsy, we're not thinking straight. When we are on something that removes soberness, we are easily lured. Are you going to start hammering on drinking again? I'm thinking about it. You know what? I I am not going to preach uh, against all manner of drinking. A glass of wine, a glass of beer, whatever. But I will tell you, be sober. Be sober. Because when we're not sober is when we get lured. And be sober about who you are with and about what is being advised or invited. And make sober decisions because the sons and daughters of disobedience are not only in this world, in this present age, they are in the church. And that's very clear. Jesus told about it in the parables of the wheat and the tares. The tares are going to grow up with the wheat. It will not be until the rapture of the church that it becomes clear that there are tares there. The tares look like the wheat. They just don't bear fruit. We must be aware of the sons of disobedience. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, this is Ephesians 5, 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, now you are light. Walk as children of light. Be bright. Be open. Be godly. And be thankful that you can be in that group of people. And understand this, and I'm speaking again within the church, if it's wrong, it's wrong, even if a Christian does it. Just because a believer does it doesn't somehow make it, well, maybe kind of okay. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And I'm sitting on this one because few things anger me more than a son or a daughter of disobedience who drags off others. It ticks me off when I see it happen. It happens far too much. You might say, where's your grace, Pastor? Hey, listen, grace is for the asking. Grace is immediate. But those who deny grace by swerving into other lanes and wreaking havoc on other people's lives have no place in the assembly of the saints. I'm not talking about those who sin. We all sin. 
And we all need Jesus, and so we all have a place in the assembly of the saints. But when you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you're swerving right and swerving left, and you're knocking other believers off course, you don't have any place in the body. Stop it, repent, and be saved. Sons of disobedience, prince of the power of the air. Rick, you're really depressing us this morning. Oh, it gets worse. Verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, you were dead. And we were too. You were dead, hopeless Gentiles. We were too, hapless Jews. Romans 3 verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. What he's getting at here is very simply that Gentile or Jew, without Jesus, people aren't just sick. People aren't just diseased. Outside of Jesus, people aren't just genetically predisposed. They're dead. They're dead. Absolutely, unequivocally dead. In fact, he calls them children of wrath. What does that mean? DOA. Dead on arrival. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. You see... We need to understand, we need to grasp the the finality of our position before Christ because all people born into this world are born dead. You could say we were all stillborn. That's the miracle of grace. We were all stillborn spiritually. Because we came into this world and ever since our parents first sinned, Papa Adam, Mama Eve, death entered into the world through sin Death spread to all men because all sin, even not in the likeness of Adam. So it's not Adam's original sin that makes me a sinner. It's my own. It's the fact that I have a sin nature that I was born with and have acted upon. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, Each one when he is tempted is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Dead on arrival. In this age, add to that the fact that we have a sin nature, we have the sons of disobedience, we have the prince of the power of the air, and this is all going on right now. And it is a wonder anyone is saved, except that it's into this mess God poured His Holy Spirit. Which is why we're here today. Why anybody comes to an understanding of Jesus Christ is because God has countered this death. One more thing on this, in this deadness. All we do, he says, is we live in the lusts of our flesh and we indulge the desires of the flesh and the mind. Did you catch that? The mind. Lust of the flesh, I get. It's all the physical activities, the physical things we do, the things that we're lured to, that we're drawn to, and it could be food, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be any manner of things that the flesh just kind of wants to do. And we find ourselves engaged in or involved in. But he says, interestingly, we indulge the desires of the mind. 
And my friends, one of the most subtle sources of sin and one of the biggest barriers to faith is the mind. It's the human intellect. It's the intellectual who's just too smart for God and yet utterly foolish in their big-headed brain power. And the spin stops here. Uh, Those of you who have watched or been aware of the 20-year run of Bill O'Reilly, and the O'Reilly Factor, the number one rated news program for 20 years, Huge following, books, website, the whole thing, speaking tours, uh, going all over the place. Bill O'Reilly, brilliant man. Agree with him or not, brilliant man, educated, erudite, prolific, intellectual, fired. Went on vacation and is not coming back. I thought about that in my current position. Apparently Fox News paid out $13 million in, 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 uh, you know, because there were some uh, five incidences of sexual harassment, so $13 million to kind of hush it all up, and all all that came out in this big mess. And I'm thinking, wow, with me, I think it was $13.75 because I told a kid to shut up after Bible study or something. I don't know. No, he's gone. Show over. I don't mean any disrespect to Bill O'Reilly himself, He was targeted in many ways by so many opposition groups, but my friends, he fueled the fire. Well, how did he do that? The mind. And it's something I've noticed for a long time watching that show. He's brilliant and arrogant. And I don't say that again against him. I say it for our sake that the intellect is a prideful thing. The more we think we know, the less we really know. As Proverbs 16:18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And when word came out about that show going down and him being off of off of the news channel, I kind of went Proverbs 16:18. Gave me compassion for him and it made me sober for me. It made me stop once again and say, "Oh, Jesus, keep me humble." Oh, Jesus, do whatever you have to do to keep me from becoming some arrogant guy. Because then I become useless to God. It was said that Bill O'Reilly had a good run. I would rather walk. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So let's walk in Humility. Reminded, and that's why all of these verses, why we spent so much time this morning just on these three verses, is we have to remember where we came from. We must remember, every one of us, that we were dead on arrival. That without the blood work of Jesus Christ, we were all spiritually dead for all eternity. That's where we came from. But here in this final, futile, fruitless place of deep, dark hopelessness. It's here in the moment of of least opportunity, of least hope. The greatest conjunction in the Bible comes into play. Verse 4, but God. I love those two words. But 
God. Yet Yahweh. However, Hashem. But God. Those two words, I think you can make an argument, comprise the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is the turning point. This is where it all changed. We were as dead as dead could possibly be without hope in a world that's evil, run by a prince that's evil, with sons of disobedience and daughters of disobedience ranging the planet. What hope do we have? We're in the grave. We're done. We're finished for eternity. But God. Yet, Yahweh. He made us alive. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And almost as an afterthought, Paul writes, by grace, you have been saved. But God made us alive. Oh, death, where is your victory? 1 Corinthians 15.55 Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! We are alive. We were dead. We were, we were swerving off the road when suddenly, with two words, we make a hairpin turn that takes us out of death, death Valley and lands us in Graceland. Thank you very much. (laughs) We are out of the graveyard and we are into the grace of God. But God did this. But God. In another place, Paul writes, Romans 5, 6, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, I was impoverished with guilt, but God, rich in mercy. I was filled with self-loathing, but God loved me because of His great love. I was dead, but God made me alive. I was utterly alone, but note this, God made us alive together with Christ. I'm not just alive, now running around the planet. I'm alive together with those who have been made alive and all of us together in Christ. I mean, it just keeps getting better. And these are the basis of the next wonderful parenthetical phrase, by grace you have been saved. God is rich in mercy. By grace you have been saved. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Let's let's understand this. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And we get both. Not only am I not getting the death that I deserve, but I am getting the life that I don't deserve. Mercy is a loss. That is, it is a loss of condemnation. Condemnation judgment is taken off the table in mercy. But grace is a gift of salvation. Mercy is released from prison. Grace, grace is being extended unto eternal life. Mercy and grace. Grace. 
And Paul says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we picked that apart on Wednesday night. And if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to listen. Because we've got to comprehend grace. And it is fully comprehensible, by the way, even to the human mind. That God, who is rich in mercy, also gave us the gift of His grace. A wonderful gift, an astounding gift. His grace unto salvation. What am I saved from? I'm saved from sin and shame. I'm saved from hatred, saved from death, saved from existential loneliness. I am saved for eternity. But remember, and this is where I get really excited... The raising of Jesus didn't just stop at the resurrection. The raising of Jesus continued on through His ascension. When you think of Christ Jesus raised, He was raised not only from the dead, but on up into eternity. Look at verse (laughs) 6. And God raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. I mean, stunning. This is nearly a word-for-word description of how Paul described what the Father did with Jesus. Look back at verse 19 of chapter 1 again. What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies. Get out of town! And we will. Because that's what God did. He showed us with Jesus, raised Him from the dead, and then 40 days later, raised Him up into the heavenlies. And that's exactly the plan for you and for me. That's what He's got working out. And it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 1 Corinthians 15.52 One of the greatest things ever written in Scripture. Another one is 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that the dead in Christ because see, in Christ death doesn't hold. The physically dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. What is that? It is the church in her ascendancy. It is the church raised up. And note this, this is really mind-blowing. Paul says it already happened. Read it, verse 6. Raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenlies. Well, that sounds like He already did it. He did. Well, it sounds like it's already done. It is. Raised? Seated? Paul says in Colossians 3.1, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. But this goes farther than that. In fact, what Paul writes, what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, goes further than anything Paul had ever written. It's more than eternal security. It is eternal reality. It is a done deal. Raised up, seated with Him in the heavenly places. You might say, well, that sounds like it's already taken place. And I would tell you, it has. It is already done. What do you mean? Two things. 
First off, this is called a proleptic phrase. A proleptic phrase. Webster's just defines proleptic as the application of an, of an adjective to a noun in anticipation of the result of the action of the verb. I read something like that and clearly I have no problem with the intellect. <laughs> what does that mean? It means something that is so absolutely certain it is referred to as though it's already happened. That's the reality of our being raised. It is so done, it is so final, it is so absolute, that when Paul talks about it, he says, you've been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. It is absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, done. So he writes it that way. Wow. Romans 6.5, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death... Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, which includes His ascension. And it's done. But get this down. More than that, not only is it a proleptic phrase, it is a protective truth. Because what Paul says in verse 6 is that He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ, I've already been raised up. I've already been seated. Do you understand what that means? It means I no longer reside. I am no longer under the domain of the devil here in this atmosphere. This is not my citizenship anymore. I don't belong here anymore. I am not under this evil jurisdiction. I've been raised. I've been seated with Christ. Where was Christ seated in the heavenlies? To the right hand of the throne of the Father. To the place of absolute authority. And now I am under the authority of Christ. Not under the authority of the prince or the ruler of this age. I have a greater authority. I've been raised out of this. I am under a different dominion. The dominion of the divine Jesus Christ where Satan has no say. And that is an encouraging word. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. It's done. It's just done. Christians... I understand that we still in our flesh, we're still in our skin though born again, something like that. I understand the temptations and the lures are still out there. But what we need to understand more often than that is that we are not under this domain. That we are now in the domain of Jesus and therefore don't have to make those sin choices. Don't have to follow those paths of disobedience and certainly don't have to cave in to the wiles of culture anymore. Because our domain is a heavenly one. And we have been seated with Christ. Why? Verse 7. So that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Christ. Jesus. Ages. The ages to come is again the word eon, but now it's eon in the plural form. What does that mean? 
in the coming age after age after age after age on and on and on Bruce puts it this way it implies one age supervening on another like successive waves of the sea as far as into the future as thought can reach throughout time and in eternity the church the society of pardoned rebels is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness in the ages to come wow God is by nature eternal And so, for God to unpack the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, know what that means? He's eternal, so it's going to take forever. His kindness never ceases. His mercies never cease. They are new every morning. We're going to slip into eternity at some point, either either through physical death or through the rapture of the church. And once we slip into that eternal state, our experience forever is the kindness of God, the grace of God, wave upon wave upon wave of eternity. That will be our experience. Praise the Lord. There's another resurrection prophecy I want to end with. It's actually more ancient than Hosea's. Hosea is saying on the third day He will raise us up. Well, this is a resurrection prophecy that goes back further. It's a resurrection of Jesus that is prophesied. And it's also your resurrection that's prophesied. It's Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, David says. And he's talking about his soul. David realizes with faith a thousand years before Christ I may die but I know God's not going to leave me dead. It's not a done thing. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You're not going to leave me there, David says. But then he says this, nor nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Well, who's the Holy One? Jesus Christ. David and the Son of David. Humanity and Jesus. Humanity in Jesus and Jesus Himself. Put together with Christ, we will not be abandoned to Sheol. We will not undergo decay. You will make known to me, Psalm 16.11, the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Listen, if you have been raised up with Christ, you are as good as home. You could be 13 years old or 73 years old. If you have been raised up in Christ, you're as good as home. There are times I look at Cheryl and I go, I'm already there, man. Back last night, Cheryl walked into our bedroom. She said, Your suitcase is already packed. And I said, I'm already on vacation. I'm gone. I'm I'm halfway down the highway. (laughs) But isn't that true? If you are in Christ, you're already home. You're already seated. You're already raised up. How is that possible? Well, remember, God's outside of time. He's not limited by this bubble of time. So when He looks at you, when He looks at me, guess where He sees us? Seated in the heavenly places. Already there. That's how certain it is. If you are in Christ, if you are not 
in Christ this morning. Well, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, if you have to ask, then you're not. It's okay, I wasn't. But you can be. And all you have to do is receive Him as Lord and Savior. Man, turn to Him. Confess Jesus as your Lord. Accept His dominion, rejecting the prince of the power of the air. Paul says, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you will be raised up too. Father, what a marvelous word. So encouraging. And so packed with truth. That we were dead in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Father, for every believer here this morning, I pray that You will build up our most holy faith, causing us to pray in the Spirit, looking forward to that day when You will make us stand before the Father without shame. Lord, encourage my brothers and sisters, even as You have encouraged me sitting in this Word this week, And may we choose to live lives of holiness and purity and righteousness because we have already been made holy and pure and righteous by the blood of Jesus. And I continue to pray, Father, my heart continues to break for those who are not in Christ, who don't recognize the invitation to be seated in the heavenly places with Him. I pray that You will speak through, work through us to that end. And if there's anyone here among us in this service, Father, who has not chosen Christ as Lord and Savior once and for all, may it happen today. Holy Spirit, we give You this time to do Your work in Jesus' name. Amen.